Cavalcade Audio Productions presents Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Book Three, Risk Analysis. Chapter 15. He was still shouting, fighting with me and with the wires, fully panicked, blood floating from both ears. His face, sitting above his face, reacted as if it were still attached. Stupidly, I yelled for him to shut up and shut it all down, but he didn't hear me, or couldn't. I grasped his arm. He tried to shake me off, but he was webbed by data cables and was taking care not to dislodge any more of them. Some of these ran to his head, while several led to gadgets he wore on his flight suit. A few lines even ran inside his clothes to ports in his torso. He swung at me again, but the explosive decompression, the loss of the left temple cable, or just the shock of being boarded in mid-jump had seemingly thrown off his hand-eye coordination. He missed me entirely, again and again, though I was floating right next to him and his fingers were curled in a strange way. After a bit, he gave up his attack and reached to plug the errant cable back in, but he couldn't grasp the wires. Stop! He slurred, his physical issue apparently extending to his tongue. I tried to hold him still and was shouting the whole time that he had to calm down. He reached for something in a thigh pocket, fumbling at the fastener. In turn, I grabbed the other data line connected to his missing face and yanked it out. He bellowed once, a quick hooting grunt, then just stopped fighting. On the panel in front, red lights flashed on. Warning. Coordinate calculations incomplete. Warning. Navigation misalignment in progress. Warning. Compensating. Over and over it flashed. There was an alarm buzzer to accompany this that didn't stop until I located a physical toggle for it among the mess of display panels, dials, switches, and sliders. He sat there in a full-body spasm as if trapped in an arctic chill. His lidless eyes, set deep within that gray, featureless space, were like billiard balls, all round and shiny, yet he seemed to see nothing. I spoke his name and shook a shoulder. I waved a gloved hand in front of his faceless face. He only shivered. It was finally clear that we, in Specsign, had reached an impasse. We'd yet to deconstruct the actual battle, 
because the group as a whole had no idea what I, as an individual, specifically the individual responsible for half the battle, knew about what exactly was used against Jaybird. An inspection of the prototype's wreckage would have been illuminating in this regard, but that part was going slowly. The largest hull fragments had been tossed into multiple fast opposing and highly oblique solar orbits by the explosion. Recovery of any pieces would be a very involved job. Until that happened, it would be entirely too uncanny for me to guess the exact systems involved. I couldn't do more than allude to a range of possible weapon types, which was not at all satisfactory to V.P. Bailey. As dictated by her, our ultimate purpose was to either eliminate or confirm the administrative and or pilot errors that led to the confrontation. We were to also look for any overt signs of technical problems with the experimental hardware that might have contributed to the event. The urgency of her insistence was growing as the facts in our daily reports waned. Questions about the weaponry aside, there were yet other roadblocks. The decision to attack the intruder, as it had come to be called, with a prototype vessel began to bother everyone else as much as it had been bothering me. To put it simply, we didn't know what the managers on duty at the time of the incident had been trying to achieve or what the pilots thought they were doing. Live feeds from inside the test ship covering the lead-up to the confrontation as well as the fight itself were nowhere to be found in the data packages we were given. We weren't even getting any reports from R&D regarding the state of the hardware at the time in question. The fact that someone had believed it was a good idea for a test vessel to engage a completely unknown element like the intruder was a colossal failure in logical thinking. If it appeared that the order came from Mylag Vernier administrators, then a station management purge would almost certainly follow, and it was probably going to happen anyway as soon as team took the reins. If it came from the pilots themselves, then a shakeup of R&D would happen, since the test personnel were considered assets of that department, and again, that was possibly the plan either way. And if it was the fault of special system control, a lawsuit of epic proportions was in the offing. Digging through transmission logs and submitted reports from observing engineers and emergency response vessels in position at the time showed no new information. Though they did serve to highlight some very significant information gaps in the official reports. Our group had authority to dig into this, but station admin and R&D had both gone into tight-lip mode. It was seriously frustrating, as even VP Bailey was hitting brick wall after brick wall at her level of clearance. Senior management back on Interstar Station might have been able to break through all this stalling, but we would have been kissing our own jobs goodbye if we admitted that we couldn't do them. Why did they risk an attack with the single most valuable vessel in space, the one ship they absolutely could not afford to lose? This was the one part of the incident that had never made sense. 
Getting comprehensive information out of the sensor swarm, especially regarding the critical areas of gravity channeling and cone formation, required a level of logistical orchestration that was simply beyond anything R&D could put into play, or even orbital control. Not even team was set up for such a thing. Liquidator had been a mere observer, after all. The specific capabilities of the free jump design demanded a whole new approach to the problem, and, by its very nature, it covered a truly massive area of the star system. Special System Control, or SSC, was a project-specific interdisciplinary group here on station, a private contractor, actually, that had run the actual test flights. It required a huge level of oversight and coordination, to say nothing of resources, to manage the drone swarm within the relevant orbits of the test runs, so much so that an entire branch of the project had been turned over to these specialists to do exactly that. In order to get the most accurate sensor readings possible, the flight program had to be conducted in a very specific way. SSC had been given the requisite authority to see that the ship was flown when, where, and how it needed to be so as to generate the very best results. SSC was made up of scientists, administrators, engineers, and sensor specialists, none of who were pulled from the established hierarchies of admin or R&D. Upper management had deemed it prudent to put outsiders in this position, a dispassionate company unconnected with either the design or development of the project. In theory, this would garner nothing but accurate assessments of the generated data, since no one in SSC had a stake in the success or failure of the free jump tech itself. To say that it rankled admin and R&D, that command and control of the actual test runs was out of either of their hands, was an understatement. Specsign's review of intra- and inter-departmental memos and reports represented a mosaic of very bad blood. SSC had apparently come to see the project administrators, as well as the designers themselves, as little more than gangs of small-minded control freaks. R&D saw both SSC and admin as faceless mobs of incompetent data crunchers and bureaucrats who brought nothing of value to the process. And admin, for its part, seemed to blame everyone and everything but itself. By the time Shady Lady, the intruder in question, had arrived on the scene, the atmosphere between these three sections had become so poisonous, so utterly dysfunctional, that it had filtered out into the station at large. Much of the day-to-day workings of Mylag Vernier had become laced with various shades of passive aggression. Idle talk on my own time, with Barney and his buds, only confirmed this impression. Though unconnected with either drone oversight or the engineering team, the Vipers were, nonetheless, quality sources of station scuttlebutt. Between classified reports, some careful pondering, and the anecdotal observations of outsiders, I came to the conclusion that the project had, for some time before the incident, been riding for a fall. The only question of any note that remained was who had given the actual order to move in and attack. Gunnery questions of mine aside, that was the only one that mattered. 
because right now, everyone associated with this incident was under the microscope, and Interstar wanted a solid target for its wrath. As a private contractor, SSC was especially hard to reach for comments and queries. We had zero pull with them, and even laying allegations of obstruction and contract violations at their feet went completely unheeded. They remained silent, and if anything, seemed ready to pull up stakes and bug out at the first opportunity. When it came down to it, none of the camps were adding any useful commentary, despite extensive debriefings by special team and management investigators that were occurring simultaneously with our own review, transcripts of which were cc'd to us as a matter of course. All sides denied all errors and all wrongdoings while pointing fingers at all their perceived enemies. It would have been a joke, except that I had killed two people. I was extremely angry. Someone, either the pilots themselves or parties as yet unknown here on the station, had put the ship in harm's way for no good reason. The incident displayed a level of incompetence that was frankly appalling, and I, for one, felt driven to find the answer. Brand and the others seemed to pick up on my passion, and I like to think they found it a little inspiring. The better part of a week had passed by now, and I worked late every day. Outside of a few social excursions here and there with the Vipers, and the increasingly bizarre image in my head of a stealth ship docked surreptitiously to the skin of Mylag Vernier, my thoughts were predominantly on Jaybird. We need new sources of information, one of the team gunners in our group stated at last. Brand swept the room with his arm, encompassing the machines filled with data and Specsign in general. This is all there is, he said with bitterness. No, it's not, another one argued. It's just all we've been given. We have everything the other investigating groups have, including team, Brand replied, but his tone was that of someone who agreed. Then team doesn't have it all either. Quan T stated firmly. He'd done a great job of maintaining his chilly aloofness and spy guy aura, but a few cracks had begun to show by this point, including a humorous tirade one day about the quality of available toiletries on station. We all nodded now because he was right, and not just about the bathroom products. SSC, Project Admin, and R&D had all closed ranks. Outside investigations were being so stonewalled it was like kissing a mountain. There is one thing, I put in while scrolling through files on my wrist comp. When I found that waveform that John had showed us on the conference call, I pushed it to the other's Tri-D displays. I found this while digging through background radio chatter. What is it? One of the engineers asked. Not sure, I said. Com signal? It doesn't correspond to anything else in the records. They all studied it and interacted with the data for a bit. Brand considered our options broodingly for several minutes as we batted mostly speculative ideas back and forth about the interplay of some fine details in the waveform. Then, quite unexpectedly, he announced that we could all leave early. 
I need to talk to Seven Kaitoro, he told us, and just walked out, already on the horn to the man's office. Team Officer CPSO-7 Hanji Kaitoro was overseeing intercommunications between the various special assignment groups, like ours, that were working on this problem. We'd met him once, briefly, during the week, when he'd stop by for a quick word about something with our own seven. Presumably, if Brand had an idea, and it required Seven Kaitoro's help or permission, it had something to do with the other spec signs. I mentioned this aloud as we sort of lingered there. On the one hand, it seemed like a blistering meeting with the leaders of the three departments under investigation was nigh, wherein threats would be raised and accusations of obstruction would be made. On the other hand, such things had already been tried, and we had the transcripts to prove it. They simply weren't talking, not to us nor each other and no one looking into the problem apparently had the juice to make them do so. I'd no idea what Brand had decided to do, but this gave me a couple hours free in the middle of the day, an unexpected treat. I was all set up to meet Dieter at the pub later on, but at the moment, I was without obligations. As I walked along a quiet avenue over near one of the clerical departments, I decided to call Shady Lady and see what was up. By Mavis's tone of voice the other day, I could tell that she and really all of them were feeling cut off and vulnerable. There was still plenty of time for people to make stupid mistakes, so I thought I should do my part to allay their fears. That wasn't my strong suit normally, but the situation was hardly normal. Stina picked up and just looked at me. She didn't say anything, yet she must have seen me staring back at her. Um, hi? Hi. How's it going? Okay. Good, that's, um, that's good. Can I talk to Mavis? She's sleeping. She's, oh, really? Okay, well, good for her. She hasn't laid down since we woke her up that time, right? She just shrugged, as if she didn't know, or didn't care, or maybe couldn't care. Right. How about Chris? Hold on. Her face went away. There was nothing then for long seconds, though the connection was still up. Chris finally came into view, hovering as a blurry, distorted image in the middle of my line of sight. Whoa, what's up with the camera? I asked, because having a blurry smudge in my point of view was very distracting. I even stopped and leaned against the bulkhead. What do you mean? He asked. I can see you. You're all out of focus. The blur seemed to fiddle with settings for a bit, mumbling that everything looked good, then reached forward to the actual camera. The image was obscured entirely for a moment then came back slightly better. I could at least see that it was Chris instead of an amorphous blob, but he was still a greatly fuzzy fellow hovering there in the center of my perspective, so I cut the video part of the feed entirely. Sorry, he supplied. I spilled some sauce earlier when I was eating. I'll get it cleaned up. What's going on? Just checking in. Have you heard from Dieter? Is he still on for later? Yeah, he is. He called a few hours ago. Look, 
we're going to have to limit this kind of contact, Dijak. Important stuff only. You understand? It's a risk, despite the precautions. Oh, is it? I thought that... But, um, yeah, of course, sure. When would you like to hear from me? How about after you and Dieter come up with an action plan? Then we'll go over it together. Dieter and I are coming up with the plan? You're the ones in place. Ah. Well, I guess I'll talk to you later then. Okay, Jack. Thanks for calling in. And then the connection closed. Dieter was a hit with the gang. I broke the ice when he came into the pub, muttering to Barney that he looked familiar. I then stepped up to the bar where he was placing a breakfast order. The place had a limited food menu, and in an all-day, all-night environment like this, it was always breakfast time for someone. He was close enough for the gang to hear, so I asked him if he was so-and-so from such-and-such place. He said no and corrected me with a witty reply, and we just punted from there. I had primed him about the smackball obsession of the group, and it turned out he was a fan of the pro leagues anyway. This meant he had things to talk about, and he was everyone's newest friend by the time he was running late for work. It was smooth. Just smooth. We made a show of exchanging contact info all around the table, formed a tentative commitment to get together as a group the next week. A two-day holiday was coming up in the corporate territories commemorating some historical event or other, and we bid him good shift. I kept drinking. It wasn't breakfast time for me. Though no teetotaler, I generally avoided excessive alcohol consumption. It could be both expensive and lonesome. That night, though, with company on hand, I ordered some mid-shelf grano from the tall waitress, telling her to leave the bottle. Barney's crew was impressed, grano being a relatively recent import in this area of space. It had a sketchy reputation, and someone commented humorously that it was a true drunk's weapon of choice. That made me laugh but also put to mind some other things I didn't want to think about related to its planet of origin, so I just pounded shot after shot. Or so it seemed then. By the time Barney cut me off with a Papa Bear's gentle concern, I hadn't really made much of a dent in the bottle, <laughs> but it had made one in me. I'd been relating a muddled tale of crowds and fighting, and a woman I had hardly known but still missed terribly, and I was tearing up. I snapped at him when he dragged the squat plastic bottle out of my reach, but I immediately regretted it and apologized. The tears did flow then, and he said goodbye for both of us, leading me off home. The next morning, I cursed the alarm function of my wrist comp and retinals heartily and crawled to a sitting position with a mood so rotten I doubted I'd be able to stand my own company for the remainder of the day. A day that was just starting. Grano had a rep for causing legendary hangovers, mostly because of some poor quality brands with wide distribution. 
Even the good stuff could put a vice on your temples if you overdid it, though. And I had. I fished out an analgesic nerve block strip from one of the drawers in the fresher and placed it on my throbbing head, enjoying a near-instantaneous reduction of pain. It wasn't perfect relief, since over-the-counter nerve blocks were only so effective, but it was a start. Barney was already gone, so when a call came in from Dieter while I was sitting there, I didn't have to lower my voice or act all cagey, which I couldn't have managed anyway. Something's wrong, he said without preamble, concern in his voice. Yeah? Are you okay? You look hungover. <laughs> As if you could tell. What's that mean? Listen, I just called our old friends, and I think they have a problem. You know, I talked to them myself yesterday, but I just thought they hated me. Well, you can be pretty hateful, Ejok. Thanks, I replied, his humor, or truth, not helping my head, stomach, or disposition. But... That's not what I mean. Our particular friend was asleep when you called? Yeah, she was. Well, she's still asleep, he stated, disquiet etched into his words and face. And that seems like a long time to me. I wouldn't know if it is, to be honest. She missed a lot of shut-eye up until now. Maybe she's making up for it while she has a chance? He thought about that for a moment, then looked at one of the doodads he wore on his sleeve. I want to go see if something's wrong, he said at last. That maintenance round at the closet should have come and gone already. Can you meet me and keep watch until I'm in the clear? I have to work. I'm going to be late as it is if I keep dragging. I just need you there for a few minutes. This was not a thing I wanted to deal with just then, but he obviously did, and it would be a bad shift for everyone if he got caught crawling into the fire shaft. Besides, helping him was why I was out here to begin with, why I had to maintain a life and lifestyle that were both my own and not at the exact same time. For that matter, it was why I had to investigate my own battle, and the incompetence or duplicity of the people who had brought it about. Okay, sure, I'll meet you there. He thanked me and rang off. I'd sat down on the edge of my bed as we were talking, and now caught a glimpse of myself in the small mirror feed on the wall in the fresher, the door there wide open and beckoning me to come and make myself human. Really... I looked like one of Mavis's hobos, stowing away across the stars, hiding from security and humanity, unwashed, unkempt, and largely unknowable. Somehow I rose to my feet. Somehow I tottered to the fresher. Somehow I showered and dressed and made it out the door in just a few minutes. I was able to do all these things, and even smile at the coffee jock at my favorite place as he pulled me a double shot and charged it to my purchase account. Dieter was sitting on the bench near our closet, and I plopped down next to him. He acknowledged me, and we exchanged some banal pleasantries out loud, 
but he also called me on comm so we could whisper back and forth that way. I'll hang out up there until you get off work. Sounds good. Around 1730? I'll call to let you know when I'm out here again. All right. Well, I'm off. With this, he casually looked around and got up with a sigh, like it had been a long shift and he was heading home. In a way, he was. He kept the connection live so I could warn him, sotto voce, should anybody try to get in while he was getting himself suited up. Easily, like he did it every day, Dieter swiped his ring key, now loaded with stolen maintenance codes from SS1 and SS2, over the ident pad in the wall. He disappeared inside and shut the door with a gentle click. I looked up, very much feeling the brightness of the companionway. It was an avenue, really, as there was a vehicle lane in the center. I watched for security, or workers, or suspicious persons, or just somebody headed for the closet for whatever reason. But nobody was. Instead, people bustled, walked, or sauntered by, going about their daily lives, not even seeing the chubby fellow on the bench sipping his coffee. A guy who was now washed and kempt, maybe, but still largely unknowable. After about five minutes of silence on the line, Dieter informed me that he was now in the shaft, with the grating closed up behind him. I hadn't heard any sounds from the closet over the noise of foot and vehicular traffic, all our fears about drawing attention that way proving groundless. This was good news on a day already starving for some, and it lifted my spirits. The engineer informed me he had just called Shady Lady on a separate line, so they were expecting him, even beyond the movement alarm sounding up there. I wished him luck, then hurried off to work, just like normal, just like everyone else. I was barely on time to the office, the last one in. Our little group wasn't alone. This day, we also had two team-offs I didn't know in dress grays, as well as VP Bailey and some other stranger. This one a red-haired guy, silent, pasty, and well-dressed in a light gray suit. When I came in, our vice president in charge of whatever it was gave me the hairy eyeball for making them wait to the last minute, then started in with her very pressing business. One of the officers went and stood by the door, as if to prevent anyone from coming or going. I wasn't concerned because there were no armed guards with these guys. They weren't here to make arrests, but it was a break in the newly minted routine of the group, and felt urgent and unsettling. We've decided on a proactive approach to the problem of information gathering, VP Bailey stated, standing up. She introed the officers, ignored the guy in the nice suit, and proceeded to explain stuff about the situation we already knew, and, indeed, had been the ones to codify for her office. When she felt like she'd expressed herself to her own satisfaction, she nodded once and stalked off the quiet fellow and those new officers following in her wake. Looking around, 
I could tell that not one of us understood what was going on, except for Brand. Sorry about that, he said, getting to his feet. Okay, here it is. It's a joint decision of the different investigative teams that Station Admin, SSC, and R&D are failing to cooperate with the inquiry. They feel threatened, apparently, and are, all three, stonewalling at every opportunity. He spoke with conviction and more than his usual gravity. While his statement was true enough, it also seemed so horrifically corporate and bureaucratic in that moment I could have spit on the floor. Looking around with my bloodshot eyes in that too bright room, all I could see were people mired in appearance and policy. Smart, hard-working folks, hamstrung by the insensible policies and mores of corporate space. Up to their necks, every day, fighting backroom battles and personality disorders all over the station. I liked these guys, frankly, but the job was crippled by a set of social graces so subtle I couldn't see the things in action, let alone anticipate their lead. This had become clear to me over the previous week, with certain information being declared unavailable with a capital U, because this important person or that important person had been uncooperative when spoken to or unwilling to even meet with us. Going in and confiscating vital information from the people we thought might actually have some was seen as a huge violation of something. Understand, such actions wouldn't be counter to the actual rules, since our power to investigate the situation had come directly from upper management, nor did it run afoul of necessity by any means. Yet each department was looking like a fiefdom all its own and you don't invade a kingdom unless you're willing to start a war. Our job, therefore, had been incredibly hard from the start, though I may have been the only one who hadn't understood that. We were to ferret out the truth and expose what had gone wrong, but without stepping on too many toes. It was ludicrous. In the Alliance, or anywhere else, something like this would have put every person involved under a burning spotlight. Indeed, the investigative process would likely have shut the program down cold until all answers were obtained and the chips could fall wherever they may. Here, however, investigators were expected to get those same kinds of results without torpedoing company initiatives or certain people's careers. In other words, to be a bull tiptoeing around a china shop. Because if you break them, you bought them. I couldn't stifle an acidic laugh, despite myself. The others looked at me with knowing nods that made it plain they mistook my disgust for wryness. The hangover was not letting up. Where does that leave us then, sir? One of the fleet gunners asked. Unfortunately, Brand replied, looking us all over while I sat on the edge of a desk trying to ignore my headache. I'd shed the nerve block at some point and had forgotten to replace it. That leaves us with the need to get some of our own eyes and ears in there. One group has a few members going into admin. Another is targeting SSC. We've been selected to supply people for R&D. 
What do you mean by supply? Somebody queried. I'm not sure who. I wasn't focusing. We're asking certain members of the investigative groups to obtain work positions in those departments with the express purpose of continuing the inquiry. These must be people currently unfamiliar to anyone in there, which leaves me out immediately since I conducted so many interviews. Two more of us are already known to several different employees in R&D, having worked with them in the past, according to records. And for legal reasons, no team officers or personnel can be directly involved in a subterfuge of this nature. That only leaves Quan and Ejok. At the mention of my name, I looked up at him, at everyone, through pounding fog and disassociating cynicism. Quan was standing next to me. I hadn't noticed. The Seven had an earnest manner, which might have been compelling in other circumstances, but at that moment the best I could manage was a slow game of catching up. Gentlemen, he asked, his eyes on first one, then the other of us. How would you feel about doing some undercover work? You have been listening to Risk Analysis, a science fiction novel written and read by David Collins Rivera. You can contact me at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. You can also check out my site at cavalcadeaudio.com and sign up for my newsletter, where you'll find exclusive content and early releases. This story is copyright 2016 by the author and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 international license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called i by Trunks and can be found on SoundCloud.com. The theme for Risk Analysis is called The Inventor by Zach Beaver and is available on SoundCloud.com. Risk Analysis is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person, living or dead, nor any particular place or situation. Thank you for listening. Take care.